Well, turn with me to Hosea chapter 12. Hosea chapter 12. And before we read, let's pray once again. Let's pray. Father, what we thank you for this word, and again, we ask your help in interpreting it and understanding it. Lord, help us to walk away from here with something that we can learn and apply in our lives. Help us to see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. So actually, we're going to start at 11 verse 12. In the Hebrew Bible, the chapter heading, chapter starts at 11 verse 12. So I don't know why it is in the ESV different, but let's read the whole chapter. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions, and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob led, fled to the land of Aram, where Israel, where Israel served for a wife. And for a wife, he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from, from Egypt. And by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim was given bitter provocation. So his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Well, we're into the, the last section of Hosea, uh, 12, section, uh, chapters 12 to 14. And uh, commentators think that they, they form a, a unit together. Um, and they... They also kind of place it, place these chapters within about 10 years of a, uh, the northern kingdom being overrun by the Assyrians. So Samaria, the capital of, uh, of Ephraim and the northern kingdom, was overrun in 722 BC. Um, so this is maybe 10 years before that, 732, thereabouts, um, that Hosea is speaking. And many things are going on uh, around uh, in, in the background, the politics is, is continuing apace. You may have noticed that uh, uh, at the end of verse 1 there, that they make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. There's a sense in which Israel is trying to play off both sides. Assyria is a great power to the north and Egypt is a great power to the south. 
And so they're paying tribute to Egypt in oil, and uh, they're trying to keep Assyria happy as well. And, you know, it's a bit of a disaster, frankly. It's hard to, to try and keep both um, uh, at arm's length. And, and, and they're looking to themselves, or they're looking to their own ingenuity, really, to, to, to solve a, pro- a political problem that they have with these two powerful neighbors uh, behind the scenes. But of course, what God is concerned about is, is whether or not they're trusting God in the midst of it. And uh, if you've been following for the last few weeks, you'll know that God has been continually bringing Israel uh, face-to-face with its many sins. Remember that Israel uh, is to the north now. It's divided into two kingdoms. There's Judah and Benjamin to the south around Jerusalem. And to the north there's Israel and uh, the ten tribes, the remaining tribes. So when it speaks of Israel or Ephraim, which are, seem to be interchangeable terms. Um, it's speaking about that northern kingdom primarily. And uh, God has been bringing this northern kingdom, Israel, face to face with its many sins uh, over the, the last few generations. And it's resulted in God uh, bringing about a judgment against the people of Israel for their rebellious of heart, for their unwillingness to keep covenant with God. That for all God's grace and kindness and goodness and condescension to them, uh, they have still rebelled against uh, God. And as we bear that in mind, that continuing uh, judgment or temporal judgment, you know, it's uh, historical events that are going to happen to Israel. As we bear those in mind, we need to remember, of course, that, that God never ceases to love his people. Remember that Israel is, is described as a wife like a wife to him, whom he loves, but she's a wayward wife. And, she, and God is wooing her and seeking her and tr- seeking to draw her back to himself. And um, this, to, to flip metaphors a little bit, you know, uh, God is seeing Israel as his son as well. And, and, and those of us who are parents, we, we know that we never chastise our children happily. Um, if you do, there's something wrong with you, parents. <laughs> but uh, it's always a disaster when you... It feels like a disaster. It should feel like a disaster when you're having to chastise your child. But you know, if you're doing it right, you know it's for their good in the end. Um, you're actually seeking to discipline your children to bring them into line and preparing them for the future and for uh, life in the future and bringing them to... you know, And through that, your child grows in maturity and responsibility and so on. And this is what God is doing with his people. He's in love. He's coming to them. And sometimes that means he has to chastise them and uh, lead them uh, through difficult times. And, you know, if, so if, if that's true of, as, as parents dealing with their own children, how much more true is it of God uh, who deals with his, his own people? And there is, of course, this imminent judgment that's coming, as I said, in 10 years' time, the northern kingdom is going to be overrun. In the fullness of time, maybe 100 years, 150, 40 years later, Jerusalem will be overcome by, the, uh, uh, by foreign powers. But in all of this, God's purposes have not failed, have never failed. They never fail. And in fact, as we saw last time, what God has planned is, a, is, is in a sense a new captivity. We saw this in chapter 11. A new captivity followed by a new exodus. And that that new exodus is going to come into this chapter some more. 
uh, Hosea is showing us that, that, that he's taking, he's actually kind of interpreting scripture. He's interpreting Old Testament scripture and using it to apply to the present day people of Israel. Uh, this is a part of the, the methods of um, prophetic utterance. Uh, so he's taking this, he's, in chapter 11, he's taking the stories of Exodus, and he mentions Egypt, and uh, all this, this notion of, uh, you know, in 11 verse 10, he will roar like a lion. This is the kind of language that was used of the first Exodus. That God is roaring like a lion, and leading his people like a lion out of captivity. Uh, and Egypt is mentioned. And so this new Exodus is, is coming. Um, and it's going to be led by a new king. Um, and that king is a son. And the son uh, is going to lead his people uh, out in this new exodus. And that son, of course, as we find in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 2, verse 15, that son is actually Jesus Christ. Christ is the king who's come to lead his people in a new exodus. So... As we come to this last section then, there is something of a trajectory we're going to follow, which is there's more kind of misery <laughs> in this chapter, but it's a trajectory that's on an upward path. And by the end of chapter 14, we'll see this glorious picture of God's uh, plans of redemption that are coming. And so what we're going to do this evening is still continue to look at the problems of Ephraim and Judah but we will, as the, weeks, the next two weeks go by, we'll move up in this upward tra- trajectory. There's some outwardness in this passage, as we'll see in a moment. But I think the passage divides into three parts, so, so let's take them one at a time. And uh, the first of all is this indictment against Judah in verse 2. Uh, and actually the scene is set in, in 11 verse 12 for that indictment. Because what's manifested, it, manifesting itself in the society of Israel, and perhaps also with Judah, uh, is that these are two societies that are beset with lies and deceit. It's just in the air. You know, there's a culture of lying and deceitfulness that has developed in Israel. And so, that, you know, this morning we began to think about the hypocrisy of shallow religion when Jesus was speaking over the heads of the Pharisees to the crowds. And how that shallow religion places burdens on people that they can't bear. Um, And so what happens then is people become hypocrites. Um, And that's a perennial problem for any religious endeavor, that people naturally become hypocrites. And hypocrites find it easy to lie for the simple reason that they lie to themselves constantly. And in this translation, uh, as as you come to the end of verse 12 of chapter 11, uh, Judah seems to be in a slightly better position in in this translation. Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Though there is some debate about the translation here. Um, The word for God there is not Elohim, which is the normal word for the God of heaven, the one true God of heaven. But it's just El, which is a general term for a God. And so the translation could be something like Judah still walks with, with, a, God, with a pagan god. 
So there's, there's a little bit of debate about what that means. And is faithful to its holy ones, that God's holy ones. So it may be that Judah is not in any better position. But ultimately, of course, Judah goes the same direction as Israel anyway. So this is the problem with Israel. Lies, deceit, a, a society that's just kind of breaking down in all kinds of ugly ways. And where does Hosea go with this? What does he do with it? Well, one of the things we've, we've, interesting things we've already seen with Hosea is the way that he uses previous history and scripture to interpret the present. And he, so he, he, he tries to explain the present problems by referring to past events in biblical history. As though they are a kind of model for how to interpret the present day. And what does he do here? Uh, we saw, well, we saw this in the last chapter. We saw that he goes back to Exodus to speak about what's coming for Israel in their exile and being carried off by the Assyrians. And that he looks back to Exodus to try and paint a picture of what that's going to be like. And we see him doing the same again here in invoking the name of Jacob. Uh, Jacob is... You know, it is a name for the nation of Israel, but in this passage he also begins uh, seamlessly to talk about that, that Jacob, the original Jacob, in the past. And uh, you may remember Jacob. I mean, Jacob was one of two boys in, born in the family. They were twins. And they kind of didn't get along too well, did they? You know, two boys in a family can be a bit of a nightmare. <laughs> Not looking at anyone particularly. But I know in my family, when I was growing up, you know, my brother and I were at it, hammer and tongs, constantly. Arguing and fighting over everything. Trying to get supremacy over each other. Thankfully, we're friends now. But, you know, and, and boys can be like that. And, and it didn't work out too well for Jacob, you know, um, Jacob has certain ways. You see that there. Um, uh, and he will pun- the Lord will, has an indictment against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. Uh, so Jacob has these ways, these, these behavioral patterns that have, have got him into so much trouble. And uh, you know, if, you, if you have parents with children like that, then you understand what we're saying. Uh, and Jacob... Remember, tricks Esau out of his birthright and, and, uh, and out of his blessing. So, so Jacob is this kind of tricksy character who's always on the make, as it were. He seems to have this relationship with God, but he's at the same time always on the make, tricking people and deceiving people. And in order to find a wife, you know, as uh, Isaac sends him away, <laughs> maybe to his relief, I, you know, uh, sends him to his cousin Laban and, uh, and Laban is to, maybe we could provide him with a wife. But uh, Jacob finds when he gets there, he can't just immediately just pick up a wife. He's, he's got to work for his wife. He's got to work for Laban for seven years. And then Laban deceives him. And uh, he ends up marrying Leah. And he thinks, yeah, but I really love Rachel. So, uh, yeah, I better work for another seven years. So after 14 years, he finally gets the wife he wants. And he serves for her. And he gets the wife he wants. And then he kind of tricks Laban out of uh, some of his flocks and so on. 
um, under the hand of God, of course. But you know, he's he, all the habits are there of of trying to get everything the most he can out of uh, the material things around him. And on his return, then, and he's coming back now to his homeland, to, uh, and he's worried about facing Esau because he tricked him. And he has this wrestling match with the Lord at the Jabbok River. Remember that? He's wrestling with God. He's asking God to bless him. And the upshot of that is that God does bless him, but he also cripples him. And uh, he damages his hip, and so he's left with a limp forever. And so he comes through this trial, um, but he he has wrestled with God. And he comes, and he's got this new name, Israel. Now, the point about all of that, I think, is that the nation of Israel in Hosea's time has all these characteristics of Jacob, these tricksy characteristics, individually and corporately, that they have become, as it were, kind of complacent in their relationship with God, and we'll come back to more of that later. Uh, as they have settled in the promised land and they become lazy with God and kind of tricksy in, all, in how they deal with uh, various things that are happening. And being complacent with God is a highly dangerous thing because it seems to encourage a certain kind of foolishness of behavior where the boundaries of faithfulness begin to be tested by the people. And very soon the people are going outside the boundaries of faithfulness. And God's tested time and time again. And the thing to remember here is that though Jacob was tricksy, God was faithful. So we can learn a lot from looking at Jacob. But of course, more importantly, we can learn a lot by just looking at how God deals with Jacob. Because Jacob, God is always faithful to Jacob, even when Jacob isn't faithful to God. And that's in the background of this dealing with Israel. The while judgment is coming, God still remains faithful to his people and still faithful to his purposes. There are going to be consequences for their behavior as a nation. And the lies and deceits that have been allowed to grow like weeds is going to be dealt with. But all the time, God has his purposes far beyond this near experience that they're going to experience. So you look at verse 6. And so learning from the, the, the story of Jacob, he says, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. The time is going to come when his people will be faithful uh, by his grace. Friends, this, this is the kind of thing that can happen to a church. Uh, and the church generally. And we, you know, we can look at the, the church in the United Kingdom and wonder what happened to it. Uh, it's declined so much. I was um, obviously, being a Scotsman, I pay attention to what's happening in Scotland and the church scene. And of course, the you know, some churches had their assemblies last last week. Uh, church of Scotland, the main church in uh, Scotland, had their assembly. And there was a report in the BBC. The BBC only reports on religion in Scotland when the assembly is coming around. It seems to me. But um, so there's this report and. It gave some stats about the state of the church in Scotland. And I'm sure the same kind of thing is true in England as well. 
But in the 1950s, the Church of Scotland had 1.3 million members. Today, well, in 2021, it's down to 280,000, which is about a fifth of that number in the 1950s. And of that 280,000, only 60,000 are in church on Sunday. 60,000 across the whole 5 million people of Scotland. Now that's true in Scotland. It's probably true in England as well, uh, in the same sort of scale. And the simple fact is that these mainline churches have been foolish with God over the years. They have ceased to take him seriously. They've ceased to take his word seriously. And over the generations, they've just seen unremitting decline. And so I I suggest to you that inevitably there will be consequences for any church that is foolish and carefree about the word of God. So, So that's the first thing to say. God has an indictment against Judah and Jacob. And we need to learn from that about our situation in the United Kingdom and the church in the UK. Here's the second thing. Look at the arrogant complacency of Ephraim in verses 7 through to 9. Uh, So it starts off talking about a merchant who has false balances and he loves to oppress. That's all part of the symptoms of the the society. Um, People are always on the make and trying to diddle people out of their fair share. And there's arrogance here. So look at verse 8. Ephraim has said, Ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. And it's almost like there's a cause and effect going on here. Uh, What's the cause? Well, the cause is resting on your wealth. Now, there's there's nothing wrong with being wealthy. Uh, God may bless you. And may God bless you, you know. Uh, We should seek to grow our wealth for the use of the kingdom and so on. God may bring that wealth into someone's life. But that's quite a different thing to begin to look at your wealth and begin to rest on it for your security and your happiness. And that's what Ephraim's begun to do. In this land flowing with milk and honey, it's begun to rest on its wealth and its, uh, all its fullness. And begun to forget God. They begun to push God out to the margins of life. And believing that he has got, he's got nothing to do with you know, the core things of life. Maybe a bit of religious stuff. We'll talk to God in religious stuff. But in the ordinary things of life, like raising your family, like uh, going to work, um, like how you speak and talk to people, all of these kind of things, ordinary things, God has got nothing to do with that, is how you start thinking. And you only think about God when you have those special religious events. And even then, people can develop strategies to ignore God as you come to a religious event. And you, you ignore him because you think everything is safe and secure and happy and I don't have to worry too much about anything. There's a kind of complacency that, that grows. And that's interesting, isn't it? I've, I've often noticed that the people... When you meet somebody who's from a poor part of the world, they have a much higher God consciousness than people from the rich West. 
much higher God consciousness. It seems to be that suffering is part of walking with God. And they seem to relish it because they get some closer to God somehow. So that's the cause, this kind of complacency that comes about through riches. But the effect is something quite spiritual and dangerous. At the end of verse 8, it engenders a particular kind of attitude to yourself. They cannot find in me iniquity or sin. There's a kind of arrogance there. People can't find any sins in me. I'm not a sinner. I don't need to worry about sins because I'm not a sinner. You begin to think that you don't sin, you, uh, at least not very much, and you do, you know, no one else can see any of your sins anyway, so you don't need to worry about it. That's a, that's a particular kind of blindness, isn't it? We can be blind to our own sinfulness. When you can't see something dreadful about yourself, and no one else ever points it out to you, then you begin to believe, essentially lies about yourself. You're good. I'm good. I'm fine with God. I'm not a sinner. One of the, again, one of the big problems is, is this attitude that has developed over ch- decades in the church. People are in the Western church are relatively wealthy. They begin to believe that they're not sinners any longer. Not like other people. And it leads to an arrogant complacency about themselves and their spiritual state before God. And churches become these places full of people who are slightly arrogant about their holiness and righteousness. Well, God has to do something about that. And what he says in verse 9 is, I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. So now I'm going to take you from your nice houses here in Ephraim, in Israel. And I'm going to put you in tents so that you, what do you do in tents? You wander. You're traveling. Just like the Israelites of old. And here he's, again, he's using this idea of the Exodus. That there's going to be this wilderness experience that you're going to experience rather like the the Israelites did as they went to Egypt and then they were drawn out of Egypt and wandered the wilderness for a generation before they came to the promised land. That wilderness experience is going to be your experience. And that's going to persist until the time comes for the promises to be fulfilled. That's what God is going to do. And maybe the church today is being led in much more of a wilderness experience than we realize today. We thought we were in, in the comfort of the promised land in this country, I think. But actually God has to teach his people a thing or two about their arrogant complacency through trials and difficulties. So beware of this Arrogance that leads to a kind of spiritual blindness. Let's think about the final section, verses 10 through to 14. And here we see a God who speaks through prophets. Never forget that God continually speaks into the shambolic mess of his people. This is the lesson from history. God never gives up on his people. 
Because God kept sending prophets. Verse 10, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. Or verse, uh, verse 13, by a prophet the Lord led, uh, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. And by a prophet he was God never gave up on his wayward people. And, and so you see in, in sending prophets, uh, that's one of the ways that God continually shows his love towards his people. He sends prophets to bring his words to them. And though those prophets may be threatened and some of them may even be killed, God still keeps sending his prophets to his people. And all the time, it's as though God is saying, I love you so much. I'm going to keep sending you my my prophets who will bring my word. I'm going to persist with you and bring you my word and keep offering it to you. And in the end, it will be a prophet who will be your source of salvation. So again, verse 13. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. That's Moses. Moses was the prophet. He was the one who received the law and gave the law to the people. He was a prophet speaking the word of God to the people. But he also led them from slavery to freedom. And so Hosea is saying this picture of salvation is coming. Now none of that was easy for Moses. Moses had to put up with all their complaining and grumbling and griping and so on. But God kept him in place. And while that generation would never see the promised land, their children, but God always has a a perspective of generations, not just individuals. He's always got a perspective of generations. Even if the parents are wayward, he's thinking about the children of the parents. Today, God sends his prophets Not the anointed office like the Old Testament, but faithful preachers who are the prophets of the church. Can I put it like that? I know that's a controversial thought. But preachers are supposed to preach prophetically. Their function is to speak prophetically to the congregation, to bring the word of God to a situation and to a society. So that, that, that prophetic ministry is of course a derived ministry because it really depends on the one true prophet which is of course Jesus Christ so just as there was a prophet to lead the people out of slavery from Egypt so today there is a prophet who leads the people from slavery of the darkness of the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light the Lord Jesus Christ He is the true anointed prophet. He is the one who offers his word to his people through his faithful preachers. And remember the attitude we need to have to to your faithful preachers. They're jars, ugly jars of clay. They're nothing in themselves. They just happen to have the treasures. It's the way that God gives his treasures to people. And as we saw Jesus in Jesus' words this morning... There's one teacher, one instructor, the Christ, the one prophet. And he speaks through his servants. This is God showing his faithful love to you, week by week. And even though he allows churches and the people of God to go through hard times, 
He does so so that we will humbly learn from his word and receive it. And in doing so, we are prepared. Have all the corners knocked off us. So we're prepared to walk in his presence and to, to know his grace. Remember that we're sinners in need of his continuing grace. Let's finish. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in your word. You would guard us against complacency of wealth and comfort, but instead you would grant to us a healthy attitude to our, our wealth, that we would see clearly our sinfulness and our need, continually come to you from the heart, not simply externally. May we see Jesus Christ, the true prophet, who leads his people in triumphal procession. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.